Welcome back to the Mike Rosehart Show, live from my completely empty and a bit echoey, now that I'm thinking about it, office in my basement. Okay, it's got nothing in it. So, we're just chilling, and uh, hopefully the video is streaming live for everyone to see. Hopefully it's, you can connect to it. Uh, if someone can connect to it, please smash the like button and let me know that you are connected. I was having technical issues the other day. I'm a little bit further from the modem, but um, yeah, I uh, took a little break from my mentorship program. I had someone um, you know, leave and so the program's kind of got some, some spare air to breathe with this room. I've now made it into my YouTube room. So here we are, and today I want to talk about um, something I haven't talked about in a while on the channel, which is my current spending. What does Mike Rosehart spend? What does the fire budget look like? And so for the first few seconds, I was just jumping on, I kind of just killing time for that chance for people to get the notification. And I'm gonna talk about what my new budget is and what I plan to spend. And I don't know whether I'll keep up on it entirely, uh, whether I'll be able to get to this level or not. I've mentioned on the channel before doing experiments to test what it's like living on six figures a year, living on 100 grand a year. Now, that might not seem like that much money to someone who lives in you know, New York or in LA or in one of the higher metro, uh, higher cost of living metropolitans, but here in London, Ontario, that goes pretty far. And I wanted to experiment with what that means for, I guess, living here and what kind of, what sort of things go inside the budget and, and that sort of thing. So I'm experimenting with a new budget that's much, much higher. I have been experimenting with new things like uh, we actually are uh, looking at bringing someone on to basically do all of our cooking, cleaning, um, you know, laundry, helping with the kids, sort of that nanny role. And that's something new for me. And that cost could be, you know, depending on whether you do a part-time or a full-time person, anywhere between ten dollars and $35,000 a year, sometimes more. Uh, and then private school now with, with COVID being, you know, as it is, we're doing a small learning pod environment for my daughter who's going into kindergarten. And that's something I thought I would never subscribe to. Some crazy changes to my budget recently and, and a philosophy change too, in a lot of ways. So where I was previously subscribed to, you know, being as frugal as I possibly can, I'm now as frugal as I possibly can with my time. So as an example, if I have a coupon and I can save $2, I'm not even gonna bother because it's not worth my time to wait in line for 30 minutes with the coupon where it was before. Just now I'm not finding the same value in doing that. And when I look at the value of my time, and it's interesting over time as you're, you know, your, uh, I guess, perspective changes and over, over time your value changes too. Like an hour of my time when I was 22 years old is totally different, you know, almost six years later now as I'm turning 28, um, not there yet, it's 27. But, uh, you know, as I get older, I'm realizing that my time is more and more valuable. And so an hour of my time today is probably six times as valuable as it was before. And so a coupon that might have been worth $10 to me is now almost worth like a dollar to me because my time is so valuable. I have to discount the fact that I have to waste time to get that thing, right? And so time is a big one where sometimes I'm not spending money on things because the time associated to acquire that thing, but often I'm spending to enjoy my life at a greater extent or a greater level. And for the first time, I'm sort of understanding 
what that means when you know when people increase their spending as an example you see celebrities and you see you know tons of people out there who are making a lot of money increase your spending and so i'm of a similar you know mindset now that i've reached a level of asset where my passive income is so many times higher than i need you know i'm tempted to for instance if we're having a hard day just go out and get food um you know, eat out or whatever, right? Because it saves an hour of our time and the kids are cranky. I'll just spend that money, that 50 bucks to the 100 bucks. It doesn't matter. In the grand scheme of things, I added up how much that could cost in the budget. And if I even throw, you know, $10,000 towards eating out in a year, that doesn't have a major impact on my fire plan at all. And so that's had some profound changes in my mindset. And it, it took, you know, friends of mine and uh, people in my network, you know, just letting me know, hey, Mike, like, you know, if you're bringing in, like you say, if you've got, millions or whatever in assets, just imagine, not even forget me, like think about someone at the next level, think about someone who's got like $10 million in net worth, right? The, the person that's way up there who's like crushing it in business and like, I know a few of these people and someone's got $10 million net worth. If their net worth is deployed smartly, which a lot of people I know, and I don't know a lot of people in that range, I guess, but the couple of people that I know, it seems that those people in that net worth bracket have very poorly allocated net worths. Interestingly, a lot of them have like a million or two million dollars sitting in a property or in real estate or in some business generating very low returns. They can refinance that money out and put it to work, but they don't because of, you know, not for lack of knowledge in most cases, but often for reasons like, uh, you know, risk or in a lot of cases, just appreciation has happened and they hadn't thought about, hey, my net worth is not being deployed smartly. Um, they just didn't think that, hey, you know, this property that's bringing me 2,000 a month in cash flow on the 2 million in equity that's trapped in it, that's a terrible return. They're not thinking about that, right? Um, but when you go put your net worth to work, let's say there's people who have like the 10 million or, or like a ton of net worth, whatever, pick your number. I was just doing 10 million for easy, easy math. Um, $10 million lent out at 12% is, geez, that's like a hundred grand a month. If, if you're a multi, multi-millionaire and you have like $10 million, let's say, and it's at least working at a 12% return a year, which is not even that high of a percentage to be working at you. Net inflation, like you're bringing in 50 to $100,000 a year, depending on the return you're getting. Let's say 100,000 with some inflation, you're looking at like 70, 80,000 a month. A month is how much your net worth is growing. And so you look at the 4% safe withdrawal rate and you look at you know an average return of a real estate investor or even a real estate lender or someone who knows how to allocate their money smartly, in my opinion, avoiding bonds. I'm a big fan of avoiding bonds. But um, if you replaced bonds with, say, private lending in real estate, you would find that your return would be significantly higher. In fact, I did a video on the 8% safe withdrawal rate. I still think that's net of inflation, a very safe return for someone who has a portfolio that's like equities, uh, real estate, and lending. Think that if you break down those asset classes in that way, an 8% withdrawal rate every year from your portfolio is sustainable. Now that 8% withdrawal rate is assuming you're getting about a 10 or 11%, uh, about 10.5% to offset inflation, real return, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, or pre-inflation return, sorry. I think that's very, very feasible. I think 10% is extremely conservative in the lending space, in the real estate space using leverage. Now the stock, equities returns will be like seven or eight percent on average. It's a little drag down your weighted average, but it gives you a bit of diversification. It gives you a little more spice in your overall portfolio. But anyway, someone was talking about that. And this is where it like kind of hit for me 
Well, they're they're the next level. They're above me. But they're like, literally, I can't spend what I bring in in a month. And like, that's if I like had a heart attack tomorrow and put everything on autopilot. Like if I just had someone like do lending for me and, and stocks. And I was like, geez, that's a crazy moment. If you work hard enough and get to a certain level, and I'm, I'm hoping to get close to that. And you guys know that I've been taking my foot off the gas a little bit because I've been pushing so hard for so long to grow my real estate portfolio and grow my net worth. And it's, it's a hobby. Um, but at the level that I've been doing it at lately, it's felt less like a hobby and more like a business. But just thinking about, you know, sort of the longer term trajectory and what my budget's going to look like. I looked at a budget from five years ago and a budget today. And my budget from five, six years ago to today is almost, it's over triple. I'm, I'm planning to spend more than triple what I used to spend to support my family. Now, I have a couple of kids where I didn't before, so there's some things that have come into play there. But that for me is profound. It's a, it's a change in mindset that I never thought I would have. That, like if someone's, I'm just giving an example, like say someone needed $100 in my family, I would like be pinching my pennies worried that it would stop me from being fired if I were to you know, help someone out and give them $100. Now I have my budget, I have a, a place to help someone out. My, some of my family needs 100 bucks right now, reach in my wallet and grab 100 bucks like it's nothing. You know? Um, as an example, if we need to eat out or something, not a problem. If I'm at the grocery store and I want something this week, we're not sticking just to the loss leader items. We're gonna buy whatever. Because it doesn't matter if I spend 500 a month in groceries or a thousand a month in groceries, it's insignificant. And so I'm having that sort of realization. I'm not like a Lamborghini level, I'm not at that you know, next level. I haven't completely quit house hacking yet, but that's a possibility too, is that like privacy becomes more valuable than the benefit I was getting from house hacking when you don't need a house hack anymore. When you have enough passive income that you don't need that anymore, your brain starts going, hmm, well, what, what am I, do I enjoy that more than say, like this room is an example. Like I, I have this vacant room in my basement and I know I have a walkout basement, so it doesn't look like I'm in a basement, but I'm in a basement right now. I'm like, this room could be easily rented out to generate like 600 bucks a month, no problem. And it's just sitting vacant. And there, I've chosen to keep it that way because I prefer to have, and I'm, I'm getting value from it by the way, because I'm doing my live stream here. So it's gonna become my YouTube studio room. Once we put furniture in it, it's gonna become like a, I already have a guest room, but another guest room, I guess, if I have multiple guests over, um, maybe a nap room or something, maybe an office, kind of get away and do some work down here away from the kids. So I'm, I'm gonna find ways to get value for it, but the value of not having someone new living here is higher to me than the amount of rent I'm gonna get. And I figure my time is so valuable now that I can actually make those conscious decisions that I couldn't make before. And people who are just getting started on their journey, it's you're in a different mindset. Like my myself, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago when I started on this path, I guess over a decade ago I started on the fire path, but when I had my first house and stuff, what it kicked me in the face for saying this, for looking at this budget. I was the guy who was like, don't do that, don't spend like that, don't be that guy. But it's all relative. Like someone who's got a net worth of 10, 20, 30, 100 million with really wealthy people, they're like Bill Gates. His version of frugal is like spend whatever he wants and that's still frugal because he can never spend even 1% of what he's earning. And so he'll always be having such a high savings rate that he'll technically still be on the fire path. Um, so that's kind of a crazy profound um, mindset shift I've had this week. So I'm just documenting that. That last 10 minutes was just me documenting that um, for myself and for you know those who are watching and learning. And if you're coming across, you know, planning out your stages of fire, 
just know that over time, you'll likely want to, I think as you earn more and as you build a higher net worth, you want to splurge and spend and enjoy, I think, in ways that you didn't before. And it's interesting, I'm reporting back to you guys, I tried the experiment before and added no value to my life, but trying that experiment now, it's, my wife's been going through some big health issues and I don't really wanna get into it on here, but we've been dealing with some, some personal family crises and having uh, the nanny, as an example lately, to, to help, where I was spending all day at the hospital and almost all night up with the kids and things like that, that level of help, I would happily pay, you know, 30 grand a year or whatever to have that help in my life. It's made my life so much easier. I couldn't imagine not being able to do that. And so it's crazy things that I thought I would never succumb or bend to from a spending perspective. I've kind of shifted and changed and I, I have a different mindset when it comes to, you know, certain luxuries in life that actually do add value. I didn't think that those things mattered and they do matter. Like my life is better spending triple what I spent before. I do have a higher quality of living. And I thought that, you know, this hedonic adaptation that I just get used to it and have an equal level of baseline happiness. But each and every day, like if I have a couple of days off and then they come back and, you know, I have lunch and dinners, taken care of and made for our family and you know the cleaning things and the chores I didn't have to do before, not having to do those actually increases my happiness every day and I haven't gotten used to it yet. Maybe I will, you know, maybe a year from now I'll be completely used to it and that's what they say and that's what the research suggests in psychology is that, you know, if you were to buy a Lamborghini or something, after a year you'd be used to it. You'd have no more happiness than you had before. But I think the key piece is that you go through periods of starvation to really enjoy it. So I was still, in my new budget, I've, I've planned to go through periods of starvation from a spending perspective, and not physical starvation, but, and yes, I do intermittent fast, so I am physically starving almost every single day. I don't eat for 16, 17 hour windows, and then I eat. And the reason for that is partly psychological, partly that I think there's huge benefits in going without something and then having it. So I think that like renting a Lambo as an example, if you love cars and you love Lamborghinis, would be something that would bring you happiness. Just don't buy a Lamborghini, rent one a few weekends a year and enjoy yourself. And you'll find you get huge blips of happiness, you return back to a baseline and then surprise yourself again. I think that just if you're doing it all the time that you won't get a lot of luxury, a lot of value from that luxury. So anyway, that's sort of my rant for today. I'll go through some of the questions and say hi. Hey Cindy, Mr. Michael, how's it going? I'm going well, I'm going good, thank you. Brappa says, hey, hey, how you doing? Elizabeth says, good to see you on the live. Thank you, Elizabeth, appreciate that. Good to see you as well, I guess hear you in the comments. Chris says, hey Mike, hey, how you doing? William, good evening, Mike. Good evening, William. Corey says, hi Mike, I love your content. I appreciate that, thank you. Great video collab with Matt, watched it last night. Excellent insight on valuing time over money. Time is the most valuable commodity. Yeah, that's, it's interesting though, as the beginning of my journey, that's the point of this budgeting video was, is that I didn't budget for my time at all. I didn't time box, I didn't treat my time with any value. If someone asked me for something, I'd be like, yes, I'll do it. I'll give you two hours of my time, no problem. Or if, you know, as an example, I could go get materials myself and spend a whole day fighting in a store to get the best deal on materials to save 200 bucks, I would do that. But now I would look and say, that's seven hours of my time times divided by 200 bucks. That's barely like less than 30 bucks an hour. That's not worth my time to do that anymore. And so I'm cognizantly spending more money to save time. Now, if two things are the exact same amount of time, like I'll give you an example, the McDonald's app. I love the McDonald's app and I treat myself quite often to their smoothies, their $2 
uh, summer smoothie days. I like their smoothies. I know they're probably not that great for you, but I'll treat myself to them, you know, a few times a week at least. And as an example, I use the app where you get the free fries. If the Raptors hit a certain number of three pointers, you get free fries. So I buy the, the app and the fries aren't good either, but they're a nice treat. And I'll give you an example. I use the app and I can save. I get the free fries using the app and there's coupons. You get two, three, four bucks off. It's actually faster for me to order it on the app and drive up and get my order than it is to go through the drive-through and order. So I, I actually get, it's faster to use the coupon or at least the same amount of time. And in those cases where it's no more time to price match your groceries using the flip app, I'll do that because it doesn't, it's not inconvenient. It doesn't waste any of my time and I'm saving money. So I'm still very frugal with my money, but I'm more frugal with my time. So for instance, I don't want to spend six hours cleaning and doing laundry in a day. That's a waste of my day. I would get no joy from that. I'd like to outsource that and I can afford to do that. And so therefore I will focus on spending time with my family, spending time doing things, maybe even doing some business stuff because I enjoy that more than the chores. And just so happens that the six hours I spend doing the business stuff, doing real estate or whatever it is that I'm doing, generates me way more than the cost to outsource. And so by becoming a part-time employee, my, I guess a part-time employee of my own business, I don't know what you would call it. I guess a business owner doing business type activities, which I enjoy as part of my fire plan, allows me to have that much extra income that money's a non-issue. I can outsource whatever I want in my life. And so that's a, a weird change that I've sort of had and been wrestling with. But uh, yeah, it's interesting to have that mindset shift where your time becomes more valuable. And to be fair, a lot of the people probably watching this make 10, 20, 30, $40 or less an hour. And if if you're just getting started in your journey or your time isn't that valuable yet, we need to talk about how do you get those high income skills developed so that your time is more valuable. Um, and if you're just getting started in the journey, your net worth is less than 200 grand. You shouldn't have this mindset. You aren't allowed to have that abundance mindset where you can just spend everything you're making. Don't do that. Once you've built up the net worth, once you've proven that you can go without, you can sacrifice. Sacrifice by definition means go without something to have something else, right? Something better. So sacrifice is a part of fire and it's necessary to, to elevate, right? So to get to this level of mindset, I think a lot of people are watching these videos and the entrepreneurs are putting out and thinking, I want the Lambo now, I'm gonna go rent it. I want the nice house now. I want to do all these things now. And I'm at a different level than maybe I was five, 10 years ago, right? And in that journey, you have to realize that there's mindset shifts you have to go through. And I think that the right mindset when you're just getting started is the frugal one, is you know delaying any luxury now or as much luxury as possible to enjoy luxuries later on, to invest every dollar you possibly can because a dollar invested when you're getting started in your journey is worth $10 later on. The money will grow so, it'll have such a profound effect on your life that later in your life, you'll be so thankful that you did make those sacrifices now. And so even if you're 30 years old right now and you're just getting started on your fire journey, it's not too late to say, hey, I'm gonna sacrifice for another five years and it's gonna pay off in a big way. And so I don't know, I don't this video, my new budget to make anyone think that, you know, spending whatever you want is okay. If your time is valuable, spend it, you know, very carefully. If your time isn't valuable, let's say you make minimum wage and you have no side hustles, what else could you be doing with your time? If you're doing nothing with your time, then maybe your time isn't that valuable. Maybe it's worth it for you to make yourself your own dinner. Uh, maybe it's worth it to go wait in line on your renovation on your, your basement apartment or something. Just make you an example. But to save $500 in line and to spend half a day at the Home Depot fighting to get the best price matches. It was worth it for me for a long time. I did a lot of that. 
even up until like a year ago, I was caught doing a lot of that stuff. I don't do that anymore, but it was stuff that was high value at the time. It was the most valuable use of my time and that compounded over doing that day after day after day after day. I've generated thousands and thousands of dollars in equity in the properties because I put in the time, put in the work and I sacrificed. And so sacrifice is important. It's just interesting that over time you'll realize and for those people who are young, by the way, just getting started that make, you know, hundred dollars an hour or 200 grand a year, then you're probably better spent focusing on that high income skill with your time and maybe not being as frugal as I was, right? Not being as frugal as I needed to be. And there was a time where I, I lived on like 500 to $1,000 a month because I was house hacking. So we had almost no housing expenses. We were basically just living on food. We went nowhere, we did nothing. We just had fun at home. We went on hikes and we had tons of fun doing stuff that was free. But again, very, very frugal, right? It's that mindset shift over time. And so anyway, just documenting that for everyone. Next question. Mike, eating out isn't great for your health either. COVID has made me healthier, ironically, staying in more. William, great points. Um, you can eat out healthily. I think that there are places you can go, like shawarma is a good example. The, the shawarma bowls that I get are delicious and very healthy. Um, I also happen to be going to the Metro because it's right by my house and uh, grabbing like some great healthy salads and things like that. That's a version of eating out to me. Like, if I stop and buy, you know, uh, a crab salad or a, you know, a healthy like, kale and whatever salad, that might cost me seven, eight dollars and I can prepare it myself for like four. So I'm paying three bucks more for the salad to be pre-made for me. But that's value to me. I just saved an hour of my time having to like wash vegetables and cut them all up. So I'll get a, a salad like that and enjoy it. Maybe you can split it with my wife if I get a big enough one. And that's dinner where we can eat for like eight, 10 bucks and it's healthy, a extremely healthy uh, dinner. And so you can eat healthily eating out as well. So that's, that's my recommendation, I guess. But um, so find the way, ways to eat healthy, eating out, being cognizant of your time, especially if you have the extra disposable income that you can do that. Um, you look at like even guys like Graham Stephan have released videos recently where his spending is well into the six figures if you include business spending. And I think that that's important. At his level, he should be spending more. He's making like over a million, well over a million dollars a year on YouTube. He needs to be spending more for the write-ups, to be honest. He's making so much. To spend 10, 20% of what he's making is, is not a big deal. Um, so that's, that's something to think about, I think, for people who are in the super high income earning or have a higher net worth. Don't be so frugal to the point where you're wasting your time. That's the mistake that I was making. I guess I wasn't always making that mistake before my net worth was large. For a while, I was making the right decision. I was being frugal and that was the right decision. Now I'm at a stage where frugality with my time is a better, I guess, metric than frugality with my money. Uh, Elizabeth says, I cook five times a week and the other two days we eat leftovers. I agree it's much healthier, William. Yeah, better for your wallet too, especially if you're trying to build that fire budget and get out of a toxic work environment. That's the way to do it. You don't spend your way out of a toxic situation. You save your way out of a toxic situation. And the worst part is psychologically, people who are suffering in jobs they hate with overbearing bosses or terrible coworkers or work that they find unfulfilling or you know a business that they hate, those people in those situations come home from work drained and zapped. And all they wanna do is just spend to make their life bearable and enjoyable. And actually the way out of that situation, the way out of that shitty job that you hate, that eight to five, that terrible boss, um, the way out of that business you don't enjoy, whatever it is, the way out is frugality and saving. Like even if, you, if your plan is to make more money at the side hustle, you still have to save that money and invest it in order to get out of the, the trap that you're in, right? So the way out of that situation is through frugality, is through saving. Um, 
you have to save money. Even, you know, Grant Cardone, as much as he, you know, disses, you know, the whole saving thing where he likes to talk about uh, a penny saved just a penny, right? A dollar saved just a dollar. He doesn't care about that. He still is spending a considerable amount less than he's making, or he'd have no money. If you make a million dollars a year and you spend a million dollars a year, guess what? You have zero, nothing. Your net worth zero. So he's still saving if he's actually building that worth. Now, I don't know if it's a house of cards. I don't know if he actually has a, what kind of positive net worth he actually has. But my, my guess is that he is a saver too, probably more than 50, 60% savings rate. Because it's hard to spend that kind of high income that he's making, right? And so anyway, that's my, my thoughts on that. Uh, Parappa says, I'm having trouble finding a solid market in Southwestern Ontario that cashes the 1% rule. Any suggestions? Right now, a lot of markets are overvalued. I think a lot of real estate is overvalued right now too. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't still deals. You'll still find deals in almost every market. Uh, I think Windsor is extremely overvalued. I think London's starting to signal that it's been overvalued, especially in a few markets, uh, a few seg sectors of the London market. And I look at London not as one market, but as like there's pockets all around London. And there are pockets in the downtown of London that are near Western that are so overvalued that it makes no sense at all to invest. There's negative cash flow. And then you drive two kilometers within the city and there's deals to be had in the east, for instance, or in you know the rougher areas of town. So it just depends on location within the city. So maybe you're just not looking in the right locations within the city, or maybe you don't want to invest in those like terrible ghetto locations within the city, because that's where you're gonna have to go for the most cash flow. The worse the area, the better the cash flow is going to be. That's just hands down a fact. So people are gonna say, hey, smaller towns are great for cash flow. They are, but they're worse areas by definition. Like to go out to Chatham or Windsor as Sarnia is worse than London, than Toronto, right? The bigger the metropolitan, the safer, the better. So I don't know, my thoughts are, I'm not extremely bullish on downtown Toronto or LA or New York or you know any of the major metropolitans. I think people are going to move out from the major cities. So I think that the peripheral areas of cities are going to see greater appreciation than the downtown cores. And I think they're overpriced in the downtown cores as people realize they don't need to be on location to do the job uh, and they can't you know be social in the way that they were before so being close to the Budweiser gardens or being close to you know whatever the, the major stadium is in your city isn't valuable anymore so those apartments are going to go down in rent there's going to be a, a lack of demand right and people are going to move out to the peripheral areas now there's still cash flow you can create the cash flow properly you can buy something that needs a lot of distress and then put in all the time and the effort and the money and then have great cash flow, but you had to put in a lot of time. And so I guess the question is, are you willing to put in the time? And if the answer is yes, then you can find that cash flow. If you want turnkey at 1% rule, I don't know where you're gonna find turnkey 1% rule, unless you're like up in like Sudbury or some like, you know, distant rural town that may or may not be here in 10 years. The infrastructure may not be supported by the current property tax rule. So that's something to think about when you're investing in areas with high cash flow that are tiny little municipalities or tiny little towns. Will they be here if they have a population of 50,000? Where are they gonna be in 10 years? Will there be any appreciation at all? I, I don't know. Um, typically, the larger cities have had greater appreciation because there's been greater demand long-term. Um, but we'll see. We will see. I, don't, I can't predict the future, I don't know. But for suggestions for finding 1%, rule type properties, you're gonna to have to buy distress if you're buying in, in London or Windsor. Now, I think Windsor's a, a downgrade from London if you're comparing the two apples to apples. Like the exact same house in London to the exact same house in Windsor are not the same thing. The rents are higher in London, right? So you have to adjust for that. And then I think even 
if you have identical properties, identical cap rates in Windsor or London, I would expect a worse cap rate in London because the market is better. It's a better fundamental economy than say Windsor. Um, yeah, so that's just my thoughts on that. And I would happily take a, you know, eight cap property in London versus a 10 cap property in Windsor. I, I think the eight cap property in London is better than the 10 cap property in Windsor, my personal opinion. But again, people are doing really well in Windsor, making some great money, some great cash flow. So to teach their own. Trevor says, damn, that person has it made. Here I am just trying to hit 1 million for starters. Trevor, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being in the starting of the journey. I was on the starting of the journey too. I was on the path the same way. I'm always looking at the next level to, to sort of just keep leveling up and growing personally. It's just a, a personal, um, I guess, journey, right? So when you're starting, you know, at a dollar one, you can still progress and move on and be better than you were before. And I think that that's the important piece is to continually improve. And the mindset of being super frugal, you know, with your money is important when you don't have a lot of money. But once you start having, once you start building up a good amount of money, then your time becomes more valuable than your money. Hey Adam, good to see you on. Thank you for the comment. William says, hey Mike, how do you decide whether to leverage or whether to sell? Thank you for any insight on this. This is a tough one. Um, I have properties that appreciate significantly. I think about burring them, I guess, or I've already renovated them and I've created equity and I go to burr the property. But when you burr a $500,000 property, you're left with $100,000 in created equity in that property. That's in a full burr. That's in you renovated property and you get all your renovations out and you get all your down payment out. That's a best case scenario. So best case real estate deal, levered up, is you refinance and pull out all your money. And what you're left with is, in the best case scenario, 20% down. That's the best refinance you could do is 80% loan to value than an e-lender. And so the best burr, this is like the ultimate level of real estate investing is the burr. The burr means you double the money, right? You pull out all your down payment, all your renovations, and you have a new $100,000 in a $500,000 property, you'd have $100,000 in created equity trapped in the property. Now, with the best burr possible, you've still left money on the table. There's 100 grand in created equity, you can't get out. And so when you run the numbers after the new mortgage is put on, you know, the new amount of expenses associated with that higher mortgage, you're gonna have less cash flow. And so it's one of those things where you just say to yourself, after I've burned the property, my cash flow, you know, maybe it was a thousand before, now it's 500 a month. If I'm getting $500 a month from this property in cash flow, and my goal is cash flow, not capital appreciation, because I'm not talking about appreciation here, I'm just talking about cash flow. If your goal is just cash flow, it actually can make sense to sell this property, even though it was a full burr, to sell it, because you've still got $100,000 in equity trapped in the property. And $100,000 lent out at, say, 12%, generates you $1,000 a month. So you'd have $1,000 a month cash in hand every single month if you just did private lending with the equity trapped in your perfect burr. Obviously, there's tax implications. So when you sell, you're gonna pay some tax. Capital gains tax is what? Half of your marginal tax rates. Your marginal tax rate is 45%. You're gonna pay 22% tax on that capital gain of that property, of that rental property you've had for a year or two. So if you're looking at a property right now, you're looking, hey, do I refinance and pull out a lot of money and invest it? Or do I sell? You have to run the numbers and say, hey, what could my money be doing? What is the opportunity cost of my equity that's still in this property? So the, the math works something like this, like I just explained, right? Where you've got, say, a $500,000 property, and you refinance all of it out. So you put a new mortgage on for 400,000 or 80% loan to value. Now you've got $100,000 still trapped in the property. A new $400,000 mortgage and half a million property, $100,000 trapped in it. You could, you could pull that money out tax-free at least, you know, the, the 400,000 
minus your old mortgage. Let's say your old mortgage was $300,000 on the property. You want to pull some equity out. You refinance 80% loan to value. You can pull out 100 grand, right? So that 100 grand now is something you can work with tax free. That's the beauty of a burr, of a refinance. When you pull that equity out of your property, you don't have to pay any tax on it. So you only pay tax when you sell. You can go put that money to work. So no matter what, you should pull the equity out of your property if you're going to keep it. Now, the question is whether you keep it or whether you sell. And if you keep it, you will always have 20% at least of the property's value trapped in it. And what I find is actually it's higher than 20%. In most cases, the appraisers are conservative on the refinance. They'll almost always give you less than you can sell for in the open market, especially in a big refinance where you've created a lot of equity. They'll come in at like 475. Even though your property's worth 500, the appraiser will come back and say, hey, you bought it for 300, you did some renovations. Here's a 475 appraisal. Now I know as a realtor I can get 500 for the property. So remember, they're gonna be a little bit conservative. So you might be stuck with 125,000 in equity in the property. And you might run your numbers and say, hey, I can get $1,000 a month in private lending with the equity in this one property, or I can make $500 a month in cash flow with my new mortgage on it. And so you have to ask yourself, will I get more than $500 a month in appreciation on this property, maybe mortgage pay down, et cetera, um, from this property? Or um, do I value that? Like, do I want money in five years from appreciation? Or do I want cash now? And so if your goal is cash now, what I found is that when you're doing burrs, it, you actually get more cash flow selling it after a year of holding it or two years of holding it and then investing that into private lending. I know it's crazy, but that's been the implication I keep you know, sort of realizing after I do the analysis on my own portfolio. So that's why I keep selling properties. It's because it doesn't make sense to hold them in many cases, especially commercial stuff. Like I have a seven class that's gonna be probably going up for sale now. We just had a conversation about um, you know, selling one of our properties and it's an example where they're, you were, I think you were 30% down with the credit union. That's a, it's because it's commercial property, it's got some commercial components. And so imagine you're 30% down. You're stuck with, say on a million dollar building, 300 grand stuck in that property. That can be invested and earned more than it's actually generating from the real estate investment. So sometimes, if you're not levered properly, or depending on the situation for the property, it makes sense to sell a great cash flowing property because the equity is trapped in there and it could be doing more for you. But that, that's basically the math behind uh, deciding. Next question, Trevor says, it's good to see your treasure, your most valuable asset properly now, your time, your happiness. Very true. For a long time, I was focused purely on generating profit, on helping my investors and people around me generate profit. And I have to realize that my own happiness isn't derived from giving my investor a great return, or even making money myself. Money by itself doesn't create happiness. Now, it is the oil in the engine. It is the fuel that you need to live a good life. If you don't have money, life's gonna suck. Um, but you get to a certain level of money and extra money doesn't make you any happier. They say that amounts around $75,000 a year. If you make more than $75,000 a year, they say that any extra amount of money uh, doesn't lead to any happiness. I would argue it's probably about $150,000 a year. I think up to about $150,000 a year, you can get some, some benefits from having that extra income, especially if you have kids. If you have two, three kids, or your plan is to have two, three, four kids, it can make a lot of sense to have a little bit higher net worth to be able to give your kids every opportunity they need. Now, if you don't have kids, you don't need near as high of a fire budget, I think. Um, that's been a big one for myself, is just trying to realize that I wanna give my kids all the opportunities. And so part of what drives me today is like, should I do another real estate deal next year? Uh, or do a, if a flip falls in my lap, do I do it? And I think, well, for my daughter, 
it makes sense to do it. Like I'll, I'll earn that extra 50 grand because I want to make sure that she has cancer down the road or something happens that I can afford to cure that for her. That I can afford to take, you know, whatever you know, this money from this flip and put it towards, you know, my, my family. And so that's the only drive for me these days is like trying to grow for my family's sake. I don't need a bigger house than I have. I, there's nothing that I want for, right? I mean, there's things that I want for, but there's nothing that I need, right? Nothing that really drives me enough to get out of bed and grind like I used to for fire, right? But a good question. Find my spot again. Uh, hey, Ishan, good to see you on. Macrobot says, how do you spend on real estate versus running this channel? Do you think it's worth it so far? Uh, so as far as time, YouTube is definitely not worth it. Um, I get a terrible return. By the way, guys, we're at the four minute mark. I decided to do 40 minute streams. So we have three, four minutes left. I got a rapid, rapid fire now. Um, so if it's temporarily, my wife needs a little bit more help and I don't want to put myself in a position where uh, I'm going over. So is it worth it to do a YouTube channel? From a monetary perspective, no. From giving back to other people perspective, yes. So if your sole goal is to, you know, build net worth, YouTube isn't the way to do it. Uh, for sure, I make nothing. I make called me. And I do it for my iPhone, so it pauses the stream when I get a call. Um, okay. Uh, how old are you now, Mike? What age did you become FI? So I became FI in, I guess, December, like November 2016. So in 2016, I guess I technically became financially independent. I didn't quit my job until early 2017. I quit my job, so a little over three years ago. Uh, I am, I did that at 24, I just turned 24, was when I was done, and uh, I'm now 27, turning 28. So I've been, I guess, fire for a few years now. Don't forget to smash that like button. Thank you, Mr. Mikhail, I appreciate that. Smash the like button, guys. Uh, but how much time do I, if you're asking for as well, like, Macrobot asked how much time I spend uh, doing both. If you're actually creating videos and doing the editing and the planning, we have to you know, write down what you're gonna talk about and then the editing of the video, the uploading of the thumbnails and the descriptions and the keywords and all the work that goes into making a video do well. If you want a video that gets more than 10,000 views, you gotta put a lot of effort into it. Talk to Graham Stephan. He used to spend, he told me, 16 to 17 hours per video and even more in his beginning videos, right? So to get to that level of quality, you gotta spend a lot of time. And if you don't take off right away, unfortunately, you know, if you don't get lucky, you don't do well, and people don't like your content or they don't like your personality, it might be entirely a waste of time. So you will spend, in my opinion, first year of your YouTube channel, if you're doing videos, you're not doing live streams, videos. Live streams don't take a lot of time. I spend, you know, with responding to comments, maybe an hour or two a week. But I used to spend 20 or 30 hours a week on YouTube. And it's a lot of work. That's why I stopped making videos. That's why I stopped. I didn't enjoy the editing. I didn't enjoy the planning and the filming and the, all that stuff that went along with the keyword optimization, the thumbnails. I would spend hours all this stuff, right? And um, it wasn't returning very good. I think at my peak, I was making $1,000 a month on YouTube. Today I make 200 bucks a month. YouTube is not passive, by the way. YouTube does not promote old videos. So if you don't keep making videos, you stop making money. If Graham stopped making videos today, his income would drop to a drastically, several hundred percent. You have to keep producing content. It's a job to be a creator on YouTube. It's not passive income. Um, so yeah, I don't make a lot from YouTube. I probably make a couple hundred bucks a month right now on YouTube. And that's, you know, mostly my legacy videos that are still producing a little bit of money, a couple of bucks a month from old videos that still get watched. But the, the watch time is drastically down from what it was. Uh, yeah. I'm running out of time, guys. I gotta be really quick. Yeah, get through these last couple questions. 
Uh, hey Mike, just joined your channel recently. Victoria, welcome to the channel. Could you please explain more about private lending? I was under the impression that you need large sums of money to be able to lend it. Um, am I wrong here? Yes, you need to have money to lend money, but large sums are, I guess, a subject of subjectivity. So some people might consider $200,000 to be a large sum of money. I consider that in private lending a large sum of money. $200,000 lent on a second mortgage at 15% return is $2,500 a month on average. That's enough to live on. So you can retire private lending $200,000 uh, as an example. So yes, a smaller money than you might think will get you to fire using private lending. So I like private lending for that reason. Um, yeah, I think I answered the question. I'm gonna go on to the next question. If I didn't, just jump in the comments. I'm running out of time here. I will respond to all comments after the stream as well. Yvonne says, not sure if it's my phone or you, but you need to get closer to your mic. It's harder to hear you, there's a lot of echo. I am pretty far. I'm like, geez, I'm like six feet away from the microphone right now. So my apologies. I am in a completely empty room, my new YouTube studio office. And so the only thing really in here right now is this desk um, right here. So my kids play place. Yeah, I'm gonna work on furnishing this and put some sound pads in here. Uh -uh. Hey Mike, I had a question. If at low income, how would you learn lean fire? 50% seems crazy. Also, one of your YouTube videos, it gave me an example of 1634 and ended with 595.70 a month to invest at the end. Yeah, you have to, I'd have to run the numbers on that. I don't, I don't remember which video that's about, but there's probably talking about the 4% safe, safe withdrawal rate. The more you save as a percentage, the faster in which you will be able to retire early. So if you're saving 90% of all income, you'll retire in like three, four years is the way the charts work. If you're saving 50% of your income and you're starting at zero, no net worth, and you're planning to invest and get a six or 7% basic return, not just the real estate investing, takes you 17 years to reach complete fire using the 4% safe withdrawal rate. Now, if you use a higher number than 4%, you plan to withdraw more than 4% from your portfolio, i.e. you believe your portfolio can generate more than a 4% re return, which I think with private lending or real estate, it can, if you're smart about it. And you, I mean, private lending takes a little bit of time. You gotta find and qualify good deals to lend on, right? Um, so that takes some time and some experience. But for me, that's like an hour to, to do a six month or one year mortgage, right? So I invest a very small amount of time and I can get a 12 or 15% return. That's fantastic. For me, that's worth it and it's worth the time to, to do it. But for other people, it might not be. I don't know, it depends on their, their passions and whatever. Looking for a decent budget to follow, thanks again. Just Keith, I think that my old budget with, before I had you know a couple of kids and we just had Emma was around $2,000 a month. So I think that's a fair budget if you're house hacking or rent hacking. And if you're not, you should be, uh, especially if you have less than a million dollars net worth. I think house hacking is a staple. You need to be house or rent hacking. If you don't know what those are, check out my previous videos on those. Uh, just subscribe and like. Thank you, I am Jack Jesse. Appreciate that. Thanks for your time, Mike. Have a good one. You too, Trevor. I'm 17 and very encouraging to me. I want to be successful and knowledge is the key. Would you consider being a mentor? I would actually, if you had asked me like a year or two ago. Unfortunately, I've closed down my mentorship program as of now. That doesn't mean I won't still answer questions for you on YouTube. If you ask me anything, I'd be happy to respond for everyone to you know, basically see the comment and learn from it. Hopefully a few people can see it and then multiple people can benefit from the time that we're investing to responding in your comments and providing that guidance. You can also follow me every single Wednesday from 7 p.m. to 7.40. Uh, PM Eastern Standard Time where I go live and I'll answer any questions that you have um, But right now I'm not interested in doing any more coaching programs. I prefer to have um, More time to spend on things that matter and to me the mentorship piece wasn't adding enough value that I wanted to sacrifice time for my family 
that when I was going through the hard times that I went through with, with my wife being you know ill recently, I've prioritized what's important and anything work-related, which mentorship is community service to me, but it's still work, it's still not you know family. And so the mentees that I have, uh, they know that I'm still active, I'm still there for them. Um, Jonas is still here as an example. Um, you know, the other guys too are, are a lot of them are still involved, and so I'll still be there to help them out, just not in the same capacity that I could commit to, because it requires a lot of time to mentor someone from starting place zero to you know six, seven, eight, nine properties to where the guys are at, are starting to get to now, right? Like Jonas has got six properties, and to get to that stage took a lot of investment of time, and I can't make that commitment that I can give that kind of time to someone right now, and so unfortunately, I don't want to do a shit job of being a mentor, and so I'm just temporarily pause the program for the next eighteen months. Uh, thoughts on financial advisors. Ah, they can be worth it, but they're, they are expensive. They will get you in the management expense ratios. You'll pay your two, two and a half percent management expense ratios for their mutual funds that they're peddling you. So just be careful. Their advice is biased. I prefer a fee-based advisor to a commissioned advisor that's trying to sell you insurance or investments that you might not need and might not bring the best product that they're bringing the product that's best for paying them a good commission. So be careful. That said, if you know nothing about personal finances and you have no interest in personal finance or investing in stocks or whatever, then an advisor will add tremendous value to your life. They will keep you on track. They'll be your accountability buddy. They'll help you save and build wealth. People with advisors tend to be much wealthier than people without advisors. So that's my thoughts on the subject. YouTube should never be considered to be a career or passive income, it's supplemental income. For me, it's just an outlet and a way to give back. Quickest return in private lending, like sectors should one look into. So I like private lending against real estate because it's very secure and very safe and it's easy to take a property and then you can be made whole, right? It's hard to take a business. It's hard to run a business if you try and, if you have a general security against the assets of a business. Unless they're like, you know, vehicles, like a car you can take and sell, it's hard to collect your, your money. If you have a first secure mortgage on a property and they default, I will have power of sale. I'll take the property and I'll sell it and I'll buy that property pennies on the dollar. It's better if they don't default. It's gonna cost them a lot more. So private lending, you can lend 70% loan to value. So if they default, guess what? They still have 30% equity in the property, right? And, that, and if they wanna secure that to a second mortgage to someone else, fine, I'm in first secure position, I don't care. I'm getting paid before the other person's getting paid. My mortgage comes first. That's what I like about private lending, security against real estate, is I believe real estate will never, if I lend 80% loan to value, I'm believing that real estate will not crash more than 20%. I think that the government will step in before real estate prices drop more than 20% in Canada in major metropolitan areas. And so I think that million dollar house, if I put a $750,000 mortgage on it, I'm betting that million dollar house will not drop below $750,000. And if it does, I stand to lose a little bit, but the returns are worth the, uh, I guess the risk. Risk to reward ratio is there for me. Where do you feel the best investing opportunities will be coming out of COVID-19 period? Residential real estate, commercial real estate, uh, stocks, not commercial real estate for sure. I think that it's going to be beat up for a long time. There's a trend towards people moving away from needing office space and from needing retail space. I think we're moving away from that. We're moving to an online age. And I think the downtown cores are not going to do well either. So I think real estate in the peripheral areas, like the suburbs, will do the best. That's my personal opinion. Um, I also think that real estate, if they continue to print money the way they've been printing it before to stimulate the economy, the price of houses will rise because the value of the dollar is decreasing. They're printing so much money that real estate prices are up 20% year over year here in Canada. Part of that is because they're printing so much money. And so having an asset like real estate is much better than having cash because the value of the cash is decreasing as they print so much of it, but your real estate's a finite amount. So the price will change, but the 
the scarcity of the real estate will remain the same. And the stock market's very overvalued, but there are pockets that still have value. Um, thoughts on investing in storage units? I'm pro storage units. I've been looking to acquire one for a while, I just haven't found the right deal. D How To, hey, how you doing? Good to see you on. Mike, thank you for another stream. Have a great week. Thank you, everyone. It's been 48 minutes. This is me trying to be at 35 to 40 minutes, and I still go over. It's just, I love answering the questions. I like to get through all of them. Thank you all so much for watching. A secret to unlocking the wealth through you. It's three things. Spend less, earn more, and maximize returns. Those are the three levers. You gotta follow them, you gotta respect them. At my stage in the game, because my net worth is so much, whoa, almost dropped my phone. Uh, because my net worth is so much higher, it's one of those things where I should be focused on maximizing returns, earning more money with my time, and then spending less is the least important lever for me. But for people just getting started in the journey, spending less, earning more, and maximizing returns in that order. If you have $1,000 to invest, the return on investment doesn't matter. A 50% return on investment on $1,000 is who cares? You better spend your time focused on saving more money and, uh, and building that net worth. Anyway, thank you all so much for watching and I will see you guys all next week.